Hello everybody, welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. This one is The Duchess of Death. I think I read about this in a variety piece, uh, and then I asked Callum to put us together a nice script for this episode. Uh, what happens on The Casual Criminalist is I will, I've just been given a script by one of our writers, Callum. I'm going to read through it, maybe I'll add some commentary, and uh, I'd say we'll have a good time. But this, you know, it's The Casual Criminalist. Generally, we have a bad time. So uh, let's just jump into it, shall we? If certain revelations in the past few years have taught us anything, it's that money, provided you have bags of it, you can get away with anything. Well, you sort of can. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein ended up going to prison and then he allegedly, strong focus on the allegedly there, killed himself and uh although i guess all the people who he could have brought down let's not talk about this this isn't what this is about but uh, i'm not sure you can get away with anything anymore and harvey weinstein's in jail he was like the king of producing movies stack enough dollar bills on the scales of justice and you can pretty much sway them whichever way you please when you couple that with the fact that many of the wealthiest people around don't have the most well-adjusted personalities then you have a recipe for some truly horrific situations in retrospect, it's easy to see that the Weinsteins and Epsteins... Wow, I love that Callum used the exact same examples that I came up with. I mean, obviously, because they're the most relevant examples of the last few years. Uh, of this world as monsters. In old photos, their lecherous smiles and wandering hands seem to corroborate all of the terrible allegations against them. Epstein even pitched his own madman eugenics theories at dinner parties. For Christ's sakes, he did? Oh, Epstein, you're just a horrible what you were. A horrible person. They basically wore their swaggering sociopathy on their sleeves. But while history has given these two creeps the trashing they deserve, others have seemingly managed to keep their gilded legacy intact, despite the skeletons piled up in their closets. Beauty, philanthropy, and influence can go a long way when, do when dodging justice. Well, beauty is definitely, I mean, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, right? Right? With that in mind, let me introduce you to billionaire heiress, Miss Doris Duke. Depending on your familiarity with American high society, you might know her as a minor icon of the 20th century, a celebrated patron of the arts and contributor to dozens of foundations covering everything from civic restoration to Asian art history. Now, obviously, I'm not an American. You can hear that. I'd never heard of Doris Duke, although uh, maybe she's more known in the US, but this is just a wild story. I think I found, it, it might have been on my Reddit homepage, was uh, the, the piece that inspired this, uh, this, this episode of the show. Dig a little deeper though, and you'll find her life story is a chaotic tale of glamour, tragedy, and if recently resurfaced allegations are to be believed, a dash of cold-blooded murder. On our way to unpacking the truth behind her complicated legacy, we're going to meet film stars, jazz prodigies, and celebrity psychics all crawling over each other in a world of jealousy, drugs, and riches. Sounds like fun! So let's get started. Let's, Callum. Let's get into it. Okay. The fatal event at the center of our story took place in Newport, Rhode Island, a city steeped in old money heritage, harking back to the early colonial days of the USA. I had a great quote the other day, uh, and it, it was, in the US, a hundred years is old. In the UK, a one-hour drive is a long drive. And I was like, it wasn't quite like that, but I was like, yeah, that sums it up really well, because... Yeah, we have really old stuff, but everything's really short distances. It's very, very small. 
UK is very, very small. Some of the richest families in the States trace their lineage back to this coastal town, where entrepreneurs could once make a killing trading in booze, sugar, and people. Oh, well, that got darker. Which were bought and sold at the ports. Yes, this is a town with some dark patches to its history, pasted over with a thick layer of wealth. Yeah, I mean, those two things are definitely not mutually exclusive. By the mid-20th century, the town wasn't quite the same picture of its former affluent glory, but it still housed its fair share of the ultra-wealthy along glitzy Bellevue Avenue. Just a few square feet of floor space here would cost you more than your average Joe makes in five years. It was at her home here that heiress Doris Duke laid her head in the mid-1960s, at her 10-acre family estate rough point. She had inherited the property from her father, the energy and tobacco magnate James Buchanan Duke, who died in 1925 when she was just 12 years old. In total, young Doris was bequeathed about $50 million. And that's in what, 1920s money? So, oh, okay, Cam's mentions it here. $750 million in today's money. That's wild. She's 12 years old. Uh, this earned her the nickname, uh, the richest little girl in the world. Now in her mid-fifties, with a far larger fortune in her pockets, the richest not-so-little girl had retreated to the familiar world of Newport after a, a tumultuous spell on the West Coast, which was pockmarked with scandal. If you're into touring the homes of the rich and famous, then you might be glad to hear that Rough Point is now open to the public. Each year, thousands of tourists roll up at the gates for guided tours, which take them through the life and times of Newport's favorite socialite. This was the woman who pledged millions upon millions to help restore the architecture of the city back to its former glory, and today she remains a local hero. I, I get the feeling we're about to trample all over that. But had you been making your way past those same gates at around 5pm on October the 7th, 1966, you'd have come across a far more grisly sight than groups of gawking tourists. You'd have seen a two-ton station wagon crashing through the tall iron gates and careening across the road, dragging the bloody figure of a man underneath it. Oh my. The driver was Doris Duke, and the man who now lay trapped under the rear axle, his body mangled beyond any hope of saving, was one Eduardo Torella, a longtime friend of the heiress and a rising star set designer in Hollywood. The police arrived on the scene of this unfortunate accident to find a young Navy nurse and her father already on the scene who had stopped to help when they saw the wreck. Duke, in a flurry of shock and fear, ran back to the mansion shouting for help while the responding officer took one look under the car and could tell in an instant that poor Eduardo would not be walking this one off. Okay, I don't blame her so far. I mean, she... Her story adds up, okay, so, I mean, you can't not call for help just because you're like, oh yeah, well he's definitely dead, so I'm just going to find someone in the morning. It makes sense that she ran off. An ambulance soon followed, and the crew discovered that the car was too heavy for them to raise with their jacks, so a tow truck company had to be called along to assist with retrieving the battered body. It was found that the 42-year-old had died instantly from severe injuries to his brain, spine, and ribcage. That is quite the accident. This was a tragedy for all involved. A talented man had lost his life while his star was on the rise, and Doris had lost her closest friends and confidants. But you might rightly be asking, Jesus Christ, how does one accidentally run a station wagon over their best friend? Yes, Callum, I I'm definitely wondering that. I mean, it seems like quite an accident. What did he have? Brain, spine, ribcage injuries? That, that was a big, big accident. Enter Chief of Newport Police, Joseph A. Radis, to help ca crack the case. Surely his rigorous investigation will get to the bottom of things. 
He sent two of his investigators to take a statement from Duke on the Sunday afternoon following the accident, because apparently if your lawyers are good enough, you can mangle a man with your car and then just go chill in bed for a couple of days. Everything will be fine. Yeah, they don't want to touch her. They're probably scared of her and a team of lawyers. I mean, this is like the same. I guess it's the same today, you know? It was in her bed at rough point that the detectives found her, surrounded by her two beloved German shepherds and the rest of her attack dogs, a team of top lawyers. Yes. They were able to ask her just four questions about the event, getting a brief outline of what happens on that fateful evening. She told them they only got four questions. The lawyers were like, listen, police, you can only ask four questions. We tell you what to do. The police just like, okay, I guess so. Weird. She told them that she and Torella had been heading out to dinner in his rented car, meaning one of them needed to hop out and open the gate to the estate. Then uh, they then went to unlock the chain. In a strangely unnecessary maneuver, which Duke claimed they had done a hundred times before, she hopped over to the driver's seat, took off the parking brake, put the car into drive, and accelerated. It's unclear if the previous 100 times Torella had swung open the gates and hopped through the passenger side window like a slick action movie cop, but this time it didn't go off quite so smoothly. She's got a team of lawyers. I feel like you could come up with a better excuse. It's like, oh, no, no, no. We accelerate. We always accelerated the car at speed towards each other. It was what we did. Come on, lawyers. Do better. Although I'm going to guess they do quite well. Since she was unfamiliar with the potentially malfunctioning car, Doris Duke had accidentally lurched forward like a greyhound out of the trap and sent the vehicle careering towards Eduardo, who was crushed against the gate and subsequently dragged beneath the chassis. Didn't they say they'd done it? Oh, okay. They said they'd done it a hundred times before, but then maybe this was a new rented car or something? Either way, I mean, if I was the police, I'd be like, yeah, maybe I buy it, but uh, let's, you know, let's ask someone else <laughs> just in case. Chief uh, Radice uh, heard the report from his men and signed off with a sounds legit case closed. But his signature methodology of leaving every stone unturned didn't fly too well with the press. He wanted all of the juicy details of this high society tragedy and the state DA wasn't quite satisfied with the half-page report either. Damn right. I'm glad someone followed up on this guy who was just seemingly just didn't want to do his job. Great, great one, Chief. Nice. Uh, so a further interrogation took place several days later, during which Duke gave a more in-depth account of events. With enough ammunition to shut up the naysayers, the case was closed for real, wrapped up neatly with a bow on top. Nowadays, the information displays at rough point make only a brief mention of the unfortunate accident of October the 7th, 1966, a footnote in the story of an otherwise dazzling, pioneering 20th century woman, and everyone lived happily ever after. <laughs> Except for Eduardo, who <laughs> was crushed under a car with brain spinal and something else injuries ribcage yeah he didn't it wasn't so happy ever after for him anyway so i'm sure you're not willing to call it quits and accept this version of events and something tells me callum that by the huge stack of paper i've got here there's a bit more to it than this we know there is that's not spoiling anything uh, with your detective's intuition and uncanny eye for detail, you've noticed that you're listening to a true crime show and not a true tragic accident show. You're probably pondering some of the more unscrupulous details like how was the investigation closed within just a few days and how you, in all your years on Earth, have been easily able to avoid running over your best mate, except maybe in a game of Grand Theft Auto or two. Yeah, that's right. I, I love playing Grand Theft Auto. I sometimes play it with my friends online and I'm the worst teammate. I'm the worst. Like, we'll do missions together, and I'll just get bored and be like, hey, Grant, I'm just going to run you over. I'm just going to... I think you can't kill each other or something. So I just always get his car and just drive it into the sea because, I don't know, 
It's boring otherwise. I'd definitely be killing my friends in Grand Theft Auto if I could. Anyway, that is off topic. Let's get back to it. We need to know more. Was this genuinely a mistake? Perhaps triggered by booze, stress, or stupidity? Or could Doris have actually meant to run down Eduardo? Oh, it's getting dark. It's a question which has been fiercely contested in hushed whispers for decades. So I'm going to let you have the final say for yourself. To help you do so, let's dive a little deeper into the character of the richest little girl in the world. Doris's background. Well, it was privileged, obviously. She inherited like the equivalent of $750 million when she was 12 and then made more. So she was, she was definitely like modern day billionaire for real. Uh, being born the daughter of a billionaire industrialist has its perks. Yes, you get to go to all of the best parties, travel the world, rub shoulders with all the top creatives of your day. For many, that's the defining image of Doris Duke, a beautiful, glamorous, wealthy socialite who exemplified the sexual liberation of the 20th century woman. On paper, she fits the role perfectly. Tall, beautiful, filthy rich, she enjoyed the attention of the best photographers and the most eligible bachelors on the scene. It's even rumored that she and Marlon Brando were together for a night or two. Oh, scandalous. 19... When was this 1920s, 1930s scandals? How exciting. To others, she was primarily a savvy businessman who managed to multiply her inheritance threefold. Okay, so she definitely became a modern-day equivalent billionaire. Uh, she plowed millions of it into noble charitable pursuits as well. Her CV was pretty impressive. Throughout her 20s and 30s, she did more than most could ever fit into a lifetime. Competitive surfing in Hawaii, writing for Harper's Bazaar in Paris, training under top names in jazz, reporting from bombed-out cities during World War II. This was no dainty rich girl. She was definitely a rich girl. Uh, that's for sure, though. All of that stuff just... I mean... <laughs> Maybe I'm just jealous. It'd be great to like, be super rich as a kid. You get to do all of this cool stuff. Although, I don't know. Maybe it just makes you a broken adult because you're like, I'm already rich. What's the point of trying? <laughs> At the age of 22, she married her first husband, James Cromwell, an aspiring politician and fellow old money aristocrat. Their marriage was marked by tragedy five years in with the death of their daughter premature and they divorced three years later. Fast forward another three years and Duke was married to Porfirio Ribeirosa maybe a diplomat from the Dominican Republic, and a renowned playboy who famously possessed what scientists now refer to as Big Dick Energy, or BDE. I, I had no idea what this is. It came up in, I think, a script the other day that I was reading, and I was like, what the hell's Big Dick Energy? And I had to Google it, and I found out, oh, this is actually a thing. Cool. <laughs> it was allegedly, I, I think it's to do, like, it, it, I, I'd say if you've got swagger. You've got swagger if you've got big dick energy. It was alleged that Duke paid off Ribeirosa's second wife with a million dollars in cash just so she would agree to, agree to a quick and painless divorce. Seemingly eager to make sure the second marriage worked out, our future amateur stunt driver... <laughs> Gal of Dark, uh, continued to splurge an insane amount of cash on her new beloved. The next time your birthday is rolling around, casually mention to your partner that Doris once gave Porfirio an entire stable full of polo ponies for him to play his favorite sport and converted a B-25 bomber to get around in. That is insane. So she gave him a private plane in the 19... I don't know, early 20th century. <laughs> and I don't know how many... I don't, I don't know how polo works. <laughs> Like I said, I wasn't mega rich when I was a kid. Um, but thats it's got to be like a bunch of horses, right? I'm going to say 11 because that's how many people are on a football team uh, in England. I don't know how many people are on an American football team. But even that wasn't enough to keep them. It could be 11. It could be more. I don't even know. I don't know anything about football. I don't know why I use that as an analogy. I apologize. English people are probably like, Simon, everyone knows there's 12 people on a football team. I don't. 
I also don't care. But even that wasn't enough to keep them together, and the couple eventually divorced on bad terms in 1948. Keep this in mind. You're about to see a bit of the pattern develop. Doris splashes the cash for someone close to her, but still can't seem to keep them around forever. It seems like the resulting abandonment issues became a central issue in her life which not even a billion-dollar bank balance could fix. Yeah, money doesn't buy you friends. Everyone knows this. Even people without money know this. It's like, the, it's like a megatrope. And it's true. So lonely. I wish I could buy friends. Just joking. Let's move on. Middle age, Duke, Castro, and Tirella. The next phase in her unhappy love life is when things really started to unravel for Doris. At a jazz bar on the sun-soaked isles of Hawaii, she sat one evening listening to a band called Three Bees and a Queen. The young lad at the piano caught her eye, partly for his virtuosic skill. Is that how you say that word? I'm not sure. Someone who's a virtuoso. I didn't even know there was a a word to describe someone i just thought you'd say being a virtuoso anyway and partly for his boyish good looks this was joey castro a prodigious pianist and band leader in his early 20s she used their shared love of tickling the ivories to get a foot in the door approaching him after the show to request some private lessons it didn't take long for them to become a couple and the 15-year age gap never phased either of them i'm sure the money was also like the two were soon shacked up together in a Los Angeles hotel, and things seemed to be going pretty well for a while afterwards. Doris and Joey, whose modern-day celebrity couple name would presumably be Dojo. Uh, oh, I like it. Settled into a nice life in California, spending their days making music and sweet, sweet music. Never one to do things by half, Doris bought another luxury estate to add to her collection. This was to be their love nest for the next decade or so, a canyon-side villa somewhat ominously named Falcon Lair. Before Setter, that isn't, I mean, ominous, but also epic. I wish my house was called Falcon Lair. Although I suppose you can just name your house what you want. When I get a house, I'm going to call it Falcon Lair. Although it's, now it's associated with murder, I guess. No, that was on, that was on the West East Coast. Cool, so Falcon Lair is still an option for future house. Before settling in for good, Doris added some personal touches, putting ostrich feathers on the roof. What? <laughs> Installing Napoleon's original war room. This is amazing. It's so good to be a billionaire. You just do what you want. Why do you have feathers on your roof? Why not? I'm mad rich. I just do what I want. Don't they blow away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a whole ostrich farm. They just keep shipping in new feathers. Why not? Uh, she changed the kitchen curtains as well. <laughs> you know, the usual... The only one of those I can relate to is the kitchen curtains. They even fitted out the house with practice and studio space inside, which was to be the base of their very own recording company. That sounds uh, positively tame, Callum, after the installing Napoleon's original war room. So they bought Napoleon's war room, moved it to California, installed in a house, if I'm understanding that correctly. That is absolutely wild. But when you have billions to blow however you please, it can be hard to stay focused. So it'd be a while before the little business venture got off the ground. This is the problem. Like, if you're already mad rich, you're like, yeah, I'm going to start a recording company. This will be great. And then you just don't because you don't need money because you're already mad rich. So you, you just don't do, do much. It's uh, a blessing and a curse, I guess. For the rest of the 1950s, Dojo hosted some of the hottest parties in LA, where jazz icons and film stars gathered. Duke Ellington was even said to have come round to jam with them a few times. I don't know who Duke Ellington is. I assume he's famous. My pop culture knowledge is quite weak. Especially from whenever this was. The 1950s. I don't know. 
Uh, it was during this time that Doris made the acquaintance of a certain young up-and-comer named Eduardo Torella. He had been making some small appearances in films and trying to build a career in set design and freelance interior designing. He must have taken one look at the dusty ostrich feathers lining Doris's living room and thought, Jesus Christ, I cannot let this woman make her own decisions. And the two became friends, with Eduardo becoming Doris's go-to guy for any and all aesthetic matters. The Downward Spiral but not all was well in Falcon's lair. The celebrity couple, which called it home, was spiraling into a lifestyle of routine alcoholism and barbiturate abuse, with increasingly violent domestics erupting between them. It's thought that Doris was becoming jealous of her younger lover's growing renown as a top musician, and that he himself was just a volatile guy all round. In 1963, with the couple now deep in their spiral of self-destruction, they had their biggest fight yet while staying at another Duke family estate. You know your family's rich when you have multiple estates. It's not like you have one estate. You're not just regular billionaires. You have multiple family estates. I like it. And just like that, the rich girl who had spent so much time around actors was now playing a starring role in her very own slasher flick. What? She grabbed a butcher's knife and swung it at her partner, slashing him down the arm. Yes, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that's you guys. There's a shining character reference for you. Doris Duke knife fighter. Episodes like this paint the life of the beloved philanthropist in a very different light, which is why you won't find much mention of them in her biographies or news articles. These are the hidden details which she would have liked expunged from her legacy. And it seems like for the most part she succeeded. Like, I don't know who this person is. I don't know negative or positive about her, but at least according to Callum's research, everyone kind of likes her still, or did until, well, we'll get into it. Let's, uh, let's carry on. But thankfully, the lawsuit records remain. Joey Castro left Falcon Lair on the first day of 1964 and filed a suit for the scarring on his arm. What he hadn't reckoned with, though, is how damn persistent a billionaire's lawyers can be. Like every rich megalomaniac worth her salt, Doris even had some ex-FBI muscle on her payroll to deploy whenever the legal heat was on. Also, if I was in Doris's position and I'd absolutely slashed someone's arm and they threatened to sue me, I'd be like, I don't want any paperwork. Here's a large check. Please be quiet and go away. And I mean, she can write a really large check, so it's gonna go away. You're gonna be fine. We will happily cheer when Batman uses his piles of cash to operate outside the law, but unfortunately, real-life billionaire beatdowns are usually far more litigious and no and nowhere near as well-intended. Castro was hounded by these shady characters and pressured into dropping the case and then ended up reconciling with Doris before the year was out. He reconciled after she stabbed him with a knife? Dude, come on. Why the hell would you go back after all of that, you ask? Callum, I should read these ahead because that is exactly what I just asked. Well done. Well, remember that recording company they had planned? Doris finally pulled the trigger on it, setting up Clover Records in both of their names. Oh, and she bought him a brand new 100 grand Mercedes and promised to leave him an inheritance after her death too. Oh, okay, so she's trying the whole buying your friends thing again. Oh, yeah, no, that doesn't work. We discussed this. It almost is a little heartbreaking to think of the desperation behind the move. So starved for authentic human connections, the isolated heiress was even willing to bribe people with a big payoff if they stuck around until after she was dead and gone. But that kind of cynical connection can never really last. Throwing money at the problem seemed to work for a short while, but by 1965, the couple were raging at each other again. Doris heard from her friends that Joey had been around town in the company of younger women, while her own looks began to fade due to the effects of booze and drugs. Yes, don't do drugs, kids. 
As the relationship fell apart and her control over life unraveled, she started to spend a lot more time with her now most trusted friend, Eduardo Torellia. So this was the uh, the guy who was the set designer, the up-and-comer, who uh, he didn't like her ostrich feathers on the roof or wherever they were. So, um... Yeah. He was her rock during this most difficult time in her life, although he couldn't hold her together all by himself. The news that her former lover, the Dominican diplomat, uh, Ribarosa, that died in a car crash didn't help. In fact, it finally seemed to send Doris over the edge. In the spring of 1966, all these simmering resentments and anxieties between Doris and Joey boiled over. One of the management execs at Clover Records got a late-night call from Doris and rushed over to Falcon Lair. What he found was total domestic devastation. Joey had trashed the drawing completely and stood urinating out of a window while Doris lay in bed with a broken jaw. Oh, wow. Okay. So, I mean, we knew this guy was temperamental. Is that how it was described? Uh, it seems he broke her jaw. What? That is, that is not good. I mean, I know she stabbed him with a knife, but that, these, this, this is not, these are not good people. <laughs> definitely knock at people allegedly whatever she may or may not have done we can all agree that she 100 percent did not deserve that castro's temper had been set ablaze when doris decided to cut him off refusing to put any more money into the record company and with that tragic end to the longest and fiercest romantic affair of her life doris was defeated resigning herself to the idea that money couldn't buy love finally <laughs> And people just couldn't be trusted, she retreated to Rough Point, the house where she had been presented as a debutante 35 years prior. Now, with a lifetime of regrets to look back on, she must have sat in those empty halls and ruminated on how, despite all of the promise she felt in those early days as an invincible teenage billionaire, despite all of the amazing things she'd done in her life, that it had all gone horribly wrong. If you've been paying attention to the dates, you'll know what comes next. <laughs> I have to say, Callum, I haven't, but uh, I'm sure you're going to tell me. I'm a casual podcast. <laughs> I'm a casual showmaker. It's 1966, and we're back in front of that smashed gate with a Dodge station wagon crumpled against a tree and sirens wailing in the distance. The context of how Doris ended up at this point now paints things in a very different light. This wasn't just some charitable sweetheart and lovable partygoer. It was a woman with some violent marks on her record who might have been reaching the end of her rope. But still, it's surely silly to imagine that Eduardo would bear the brunt of this breakdown. He was still a close friend, the person who she trusted throughout all of those years in an abusive relationship, the last person she was willing to invest any faith in. Why murder a friend who had just traveled for hours to go to dinner with you? Before we get into that, let's talk about the man himself. It's only fair he was a talented and popular guy who deserves more than just to be a footnote in the story of his own death. Yeah, this is always depressing when it's like, if you're killed by a famous person, that's all you're ever known for. That's all you're ever remembered for. Uh, I, do an, I, I do a podcast where uh, we, we look at historical stories and often we'll come across like, Someone who did something in the 1700s that, you know, they peed out of a window and it was and it made peeing out of windows illegal. And that's the only only thing that person will ever be remembered for. That's it. Their whole life. That's it. It's uh, it's kind of depressing. But also, I mean, everyone dies and everyone's ultimately forgotten. This got even darker than it already is. A lot of biographies of Doris Duke have relegated him to that position uh, as a footnote, even though he had a life, uh, even though his life had enough material for a whole book of its own. Known as Eddie to his friends, 
Chiarella had started his career performing in nightclubs down in New Jersey alongside the likes of Frank Sinatra, who ate at his family home a few times. During World War II, he enlisted to fight in Europe and won commendations for his service during the endgame stages of the war, particularly the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, but as both a war hero and a promising performer, he returned to America to begin the rest of his life. Then, as a gay man in mid-20th century America, he did pretty much the most sensible thing that a gay man in mid-20th century America could do. He made the move to L.A. This was where Eduardo came into his own, landing interior design gigs and small film roles to fund a comfortable lifestyle with his partner, the sculptor and wardrobe designer Edmund Cara. Their parties were as legendary as any Duke and Castro ever threw, making them big names on the Hollywood scene. I somehow doubt that. I mean, this Duke and, uh, Duke and Castro were like billionaires. I mean, this guy, maybe he does well for himself, but he's an interior designer. He's, uh, he's probably not a billionaire. Gonna go, go, gonna go there and guess. So, I mean, billi- uh, millions of pounds on each party buys you some pretty rad parties. For over a decade, Torella split his time between the East and West Coast, even as his film career began to flourish. But by the mid-1960s, the call of California was growing stronger and stronger. He had landed some of his first big credited gigs, acting opposite Charles Bronson for a brief scene in The Sandpiper, and all set for another big-money production job on Don't Make Waves, featuring his good friend Sharon Tate, who would later go on to befriend Duke herself before ending up a victim of the Manson family. California is a wild uh, place, folks, and I'm sure... The Manson family murder. Maybe they've just been done so much that people don't want to hear about that again. But obviously the Charles Manson murders we could definitely cover here at The Casual Criminalist. If, I mean, let me know and we can do it. Uh, I feel maybe it's just overdone. But here was the issue. For a decade now, Torella had been designing Duke's rooms, helping plan her parties, appraising the antiques she used to wow her guests. All for mates rates, which undersold his talents pretty severely. And now, as her once unknown friend was burgeoning into the Hollywood heavyweight he seemed destined to become, she felt she was in danger of losing him to the West Coast worlds, which had laid her so low. Her fears turned out to be true. See, the very reason that Torella has hired the Dodge station wagon, which ended his life, was to empty out his apartment. He planned to take his things to his family home for storage before heading back to sunny California for good. While he was at it, he was going to break the news to Doris Duke, doing one last job for her for old time's sake. His partner Edmonds advised him against it. They'd all heard the stories about how the woman had cut up Castro's arm, so did he really expect her to take the news quietly? I don't know, I wouldn't expect her to murder me, that's for sure. I mean, like, okay, we're friends. She's probably not going to be pleased, but she's probably not going to stab me or, you know, destroy me with her car. Doing the sensible thing, he decided to consult a psychic. Oh, God, here we go. Dr. Jacques Honduras was the go-to guy when rich Hollywood folk, I feel like we should say doctor with uh, very much in quotes. Guy, go-to guy when rich Hollywood folk wanted to blow their cash on spiritualist blabber, and he strongly advised Torella not to go to Rough Point. Well, in this case, it was good advice, wasn't it? The so-called doctor probably flaunted that prediction after his client's untimely death, but he probably gave ominous warnings to a dozen people each day. You know, broken clocks and all that. Indeed, it wasn't anything to do with being spiritual or him having some sort of weird other plainly knowledge. It was just a guess. Also, he'd probably heard about the stabbing thing, so he's not some sort of magical wizard. 
Anyway, there's no such thing as magical wizards. Anyway, Eduardo had known Doris for a long time and he was closer to her than anyone at that point, so he thought himself exempt from her crazy outbursts. At any rate, he told the psychic that he needed a quick fix of cash for some dental work so he could kill two birds with one stone and make a quick buck while he was there. It was the sort of basic job that he had done for the heiress a thousand times before. As Duke's one-time neighbor, Hal Tinney, tells it, the two were on the way to inspect a pricey relic at some local antique dealer's shop. The piece was a bust said to contain a bone of the Catholic martyr St. Ursula hidden inside. Since that's not the kind of thing they mass-produce at Ikea, Duke had called upon a personal antique expert to accompany her for the viewing, maybe because she was crazy about ancient magic Christian bones, or maybe just to buy some company for a few hours. The things rich people buy. <laughs> At any rate, you might have noticed the first discrepancy in her story. If you cast your mind back, you'll remember that Doris had claimed they were on their way to dinner. I do remember this. Not appraising antiques. Surely their little treasure hunting trip would be something she'd remember to mention when she recounted the events to police. But, hey, it's hardly a smoking gun. Maybe they were just planning on swinging by, swinging by McDonald's on the way to the shop. Who knows? Wasn't it? This was, what, 1960s or something? McDonald's was probably around. I don't think she she probably ate there. Although Warren Buffett's a billionaire and he eats at McDonald's every day. Hmm. Where the I eat at McDonald's? I love McDonald's. I mean, I try not to. Not because of any, like, snobbery. I just try to eat healthier. I try. I try. <laughs> Unsuccessfully. Where things do start to get very murky, though, is in the days which followed the accident. With Eddie's broken body in the morgue and Duke holed up in bed beside behind a wall of lawyers, it became less of a game of he said, she said, and more just she said. Doris, the benefits of being a billionaire with a wall of lawyers. You can ask four questions. Doris was, oh, Doris was the only witness to the event, after all, and nobody had any real reason to suspect foul play. Did they not have, like, crime scene investigators back then who'll be like, you know, I've seen CSI. They'll figure it out. I mean, I wouldn't expect, like, modern CSI, but surely there were people to look at this stuff. Uh, you've already seen how the police chief, Joseph Radice, seems to have been keen to wrap up the case with as little fuss as possible, but we do need to take a closer look at how and why. You see, very recently, the daughter of Radice's secretary at the time said that her mother was convinced that the police chief had accepted some hush money to make it all go away as quickly as possible. Her own granddaughter even suspected the same thing, going so far as to confront him about it. The chief denied it all with a laugh and a smile up until his death in 1997. <laughs> oh, his own family wanted to, like, shit over his legacy. Oh, uh, well, I mean, good in this case. Was it his daughter? No, it was the oh, it was the daughter of his secretary. So it wasn't his family. Sorry, they're probably keeping quiet. But there's one crucial piece of evidence which elevates these accusations above all the other gossip which inevitably gets tossed up around a case like this. Remember how the district attorney was reluctant to let Radice close to the case on the back of a four-question interview with the only suspect? <laughs> well, the plucky police chief would be damned if any two-bit law school boy was going to force him to do his job properly. Police work is hard, and he had hobbies to attend to. He does sound like a terrible police officer. It's like, come on. Get it together. It's alleged that he and his investigators had colluded with the head of Doris Duke's lawyers, one Aram Arabians, but the whole matter to bed as quickly as possible. Oh no, this isn't good. A story shared by an associate of Arabian. The chief knew the best way to make it all go away was to make a second interrogation report, and the best way to produce one with absolute minimal effort was to totally fake it. Guys, come on. 
we could we could do better that's right what should have taken a pair of detectives half a day presumably took one underpaid typist just a couple of hours they drafted a three-page transcript deta- detailing an in- interview that most likely never even took place how can we tell the suspect didn't even say her birthday correctly when they asked her something which was amended with a pen by duke before uh, before she and her lawyers signed off on the document several days later this is so bad so essentially they drafted a document said hey doris this is what happened right and she's like yeah, yeah yeah my birthday's wrong but that's right where do i sign problem solved her lawyers probably even signed it for her <laughs> i don't know it's crazy after drawing a line under this unsavory chapter in the city's history and per- preserving the dignity of the elite lady involved, things went out pretty well for the crack team of slapdash detectives. Chief Radis served another seven months on the force before settling into a suspiciously comfortable retirement in Florida. Oh no! And one of the original investigating officers took his place despite being nowhere near the next in line. Oh well, so yeah, they just totally got bought that's depressing and so all went quiet if doris had accidentally killed her friend she wouldn't face any comeuppance and her reputation would remain as untarnished as possible and if she had in fact brutally murdered him this prospect could only ever be discussed in hushed whispers around town eventually the idea of it faded to the status of urban legends and so we these are impressive lawyers i mean she's a billionaire so she gets the best but i mean that aram guy he made murder allegedly i guess we're gonna find out totally go away not even go away so she doesn't go to prison but basically turn it into an urban legend i mean she seems like a horrible person because she murdered her friends and stabs people but that aram guy wow legendary lawyer and so we find ourselves going round in circles a death a quick cover-up a dead end a death a quick cover-up a dead end that's exactly the endless loop anyone interested in the case would have ended up in over the past five decades. The official account was enshrined in the history books, and any other versions were regulated to old wives' tales and internet forums where people discuss how Biggie and Tupac secretly lived together in the Bahamas. They don't. If you believe this stuff, you're crazy. Ugh, conspiracy theorists. <laughs> Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, you can smash that dislike button. Things remained this way for years, right up until 2016, when investigative journalist Peter Lance started asking all the right questions. This, I think, is the Vanity Fair thing that I read about that inspired me to tell Callum to make a podcast about it. Crack investigator Peter Lance is a native of Newport, ah, the town where this all went down. He began his career with a job at the local paper less than a year after the accident at Rough Point. He was intimately familiar with Bellevue Avenue, since the prestigious high school he attended was just off of it. In the early days of his work life, he was exposed to the duality in the legacy of his town's most famous daughter. On the one hand, she had set up the beloved Newport Restoration Foundation, which pumped millions of dollars into the redevelopment of the town. On the other hand, there was always the shadow of the horrible evening hanging over the mansion, a chapter in the town's history that nobody really cared to reopen. Let's just hide it under the rug, shall we? <laughs> it seems that the town, like its police chief, was in a state of cash-induced amnesia purchased by the huge bank balance of Doris's estate. Her campaign of local splurging began just a little more than a week after the accident with a donation to the hospital where she had been received on that fateful night and another to restore the cliffside walkway behind the mansions, a favorite local tourist spot. Even to this day, the foundations she set up continue to shower riches upon the town of Newport. No wonder they just want this hidden. Because it makes her look like a bad, horrible murderer rather than the philanthropist that they like to imagine she is, allegedly. 
In the end, the spirit of silence won out in the conflicted soul of Peter Lance too. But the shadow over Rough Point never really lifted from his mind. For four hugely successful decades in journalism and media followed, during which he raked through the murky world of counterterrorism in the post-9-11 era, before he would return to the story at the very start of it all. This world-class investigator became the first to fully unpick the many troubling details which have been swept under the ostrich feather rug. Twice with it, ostrich feathers. Thankfully, for narrative purposes, Lance has the Roman nose, slick back hair, and macho swagger of a classic film noir investigator. Picture him in black and white, driving down Bellevue Avenue in a trilby and suspenders with a monologue about exposing the seedy underbelly of this rotten town rolling on in the background. Actually, scratch all of that, he started this investigation on Facebook. <laughs> Why does modern tech have to ruin everything? Okay, so the picture of him instead sat in his dining room in a coffee-stained vest and boxes, chatting with members of the Newport Room among a Facebook groups. After probably blocking half a dozen people, adamant that Rough Point is the spaceship HQ of the Illuminati, yes, it is Facebook and honestly the internet in general, he managed to contact some people with close connections to the case. Children of estate staff who'd told of heated arguments preceding the events, the aforementioned police secretary's daughter who was convinced bribes were involved, it seemed that there was still a healthy Newport truther community out there. In this case, the conspiracy theory is kind of right, though. The truthers are onto something. Unfortunately, though, all of this amounts to just hearsay without some proper paper evidence, and most of the key documentation around the incident have mysteriously evaporated over the years. Well, one, because time rolls on and, you know, pa people don't keep paperwork. Although, I guess with police investigations, like looking into murders and stuff from the 60s or whatever it was so yeah they probably hold on to that there's like big warehouses full of this junk but in a twist lifted straight out of the screenwriter's handbook a mysterious package arrived on lance's desk one day in late 2019 it was a dossier containing the original police report sent to him by an unnamed government official who caught wind of his probing with the help of this mysterious assailant things now started to gain traction it was in this dossier that lance recognized the mistake in the second interview which supported the idea of a slapdash cover-up this would have been open for anyone to see until the files disappeared from the police records but it wasn't until now that someone was really committed to following the breadcrumbs <laughs> yeah what so decades of years later a journalist has to do the job that the police guy should have done in the first place come on the next step was to find some other documents to compare with the police reports and lance found them in the most unlikely of places in a stroke of journalistic genius he dug down deep into the archives of the rental company from uh from whom the victim had borrowed the car wow they kept those records uh, as part of their insurance procedures they'd collected a statement from miss duke which she obviously wasn't as concerned about as the official police reports i mean who looks at those things anyway i'm just amazed that a car rental company from back in the day still had that record it's incredible in his vanity fair expose lance quotes the 173 report as saying that she ran back to the house looking for eduardo because of course that's the most logical thing to do when you see your friend mashed between your garden gate and front bumper go check if he popped off to the kitchen for a glass of water yeah i mean it just reeks of something not being right the sightseeing navy nurse who was on the scene at the time remembered things very differently in her police statement she said that a hysterical duke had run around her house shouting 
thing that she'd ran over her friend, which seems like a much more reasonable response. Indeed. Lance was actually able to locate the very same nurse, whose name is Judith uh, Wartgo, after all of these years. She left the story behind after the event and went on to have a long career as a paramedic. She would have attended a thousand such car wrecks over the years. But the memories of that very first one never left her. She was able to specifically recall that Duke herself only had some very minor injuries from the crash. In contrast, Dr. Philip McAllister, the medical examiner who treated the heiress at the hospital, reported she suffered major bleeding from cuts to the head, made all the more suspicious by the fact that he acted as Doris's very own personal doctor from the moment she entered the hospital. He even turned away the preliminary investigators from her private room, where she spent a few hours recuperating. That doesn't sound unreasonable, though. She's super rich, so of course she gets her own doctor. And also, he can turn away the police, like she's recovering from a terrible car accident. She do he does what she says. It's no surprise. Again, she's very, very rich. Unsurprisingly, McAllister was an ardent defender of the tragic accident theory, but there's no word on whether he went to live it up with the police chief in Florida afterwards. Well, I'm guessing he was probably really well paid. I mean, whether you want to call that a bribe or not, we can call it a bribe, allegedly. With his investigation building up ahead of steam, Peter Lance returned to Newport, for real this time, and drew upon connections old and new to paint a picture of the night's events. He knew he was onto something big. There were too many missing pieces which had conveniently disappeared. Too many silent figures encouraging him onwards from behind the scenes. Surely his own personal noir film wasn't going to be a flop. Oh, let's hope not. Spoiler alert, it's not. <laughs> However, it all hinged on finding something more concrete. None of what had been unearthed so far actually pointed to murder. Conspiracy? Concealment? Corruption? Yes, yes, and yes. But there was nothing yet to prove that Doris had hit the gas that evening with the intent to crush her friend to death. Cynics could easily argue that she was just another rich girl dodging responsibility for her own stupidity. Yeah, honestly, I mean, if that's what the evidence you got so far, yeah, I mean, maybe. In criminal law, you got to prove beyond all reasonable doubts. Don't think we're quite there yet. What was needed was a hard forensic counter-narrative. Finally, forensics. CSI getting on the case, or more likely the journalist doing the job of CSI many decades later, because that's where we are. And with a few strokes of luck, he was able to find one. The real course of events. It begins with the gate, warped and blown out from the impact of the car. After asking some questions about town, Lance acquired a previously unseen photographic negative, which lay tucked away in the basement archive of a local family for years. As it turns out, he had known the photographer, Ed Quigley, who worked alongside him during those formative years at the local newspaper. Quigley's family held on to much of his work, whether for nostalgia or posterity. The sepia-toned image was taken from just outside the inside gate and showed some officers and observers milling about the scene as the tow truck hoisted up the back of the Dodge. Visible to the left of the frame were the shattered pieces of the lower gate with struts bent outwards. Now, this wasn't exactly a bombshell in itself, but it ran directly counter to another piece of evidence, which was presumably pinned up on Lancer's investigative corkboard, the autopsy report for Tyrella. This key piece of evidence hadn't evaporated like the rest, but it was filed under the mistaken first name, Edmund. Anyway, remember the doctor who Duke bought out as soon as he made it through the front door of A&E? Yes, we do. Well, or A&E, I think that's the British word. Callum's also British. I think Americans call it ER. We call it A&E for accident and emergency. Well, he was the one in charge of determining the cause of death and reporting it to the public. But it seems he failed to draw the attention to the fact that Torella's legs were actually in good shape. Ribs, skull, spine, pretty rough, as expected. But the damage to his lower half was mostly superficial. 
Well, that means he's requested in like, what, did he just jump up like really high when that car was coming? Uh, so why then was only the lower gate blasted out? Yeah, okay, makes sense. If Eduardo had really been pinned against it as Duke claimed, his thighs and shins would be in splinters. Agreed. The picture also offered another avenue of investigation once again lifted straight out of the Hollywood plot device stock. There was a familiar face in the frame. Kneeling down on the right side, his head turned to the side, was one Detective Sergeant Fred Newton, who Lance had previously written about during his tenure at the local paper. This was a trusted face for Lance, a sort of proper, no-nonsense policeman who couldn't be bought. But sadly, the sergeant wasn't available for interview, having passed away in the late 90s. However, if Lance could find at least someone connected to the good cop, maybe you could get some information from a policeman who had never sold their soul to the Duke payroll. This cover-up goes deep. Pursuing this avenue was how he made the acquaintance of Edward Angel, the man who we met a little while ago at the scene of the crash, back when he was a rookie beat cop. Oh, that was a while ago. Yeah, I remember. Being the first policeman to arrive on the scene, Angel had first-hand access to some facts that never made it into the official reports. He went to Sergeant Newton with his findings, and with him pieced together a version of events entirely independent of Duke's narrative, which the rest of the department was taking as gospel. Yeah, I mean, she is the only witness in all of that. But she's also the alleged perpetrator of the crime. Do some forensics. Come on. These findings were pretty grisly. Wide smears of blood and patches of skin running across Bellevue Avenue, gorily glistening under the light of the evening sun. That much was to be expected. The man was mashed by a two-ton car, after all. But what later surprised Angel was that he had assumed, based on his analysis of the splatter patterns, that the victim had actually been a passerby walking down the street. Because that's where the first impact seemed to have taken place. There was a blood trail starting outside the grounds of the mansion from a large splatter in the middle of the road. Well, that seems completely contrary to what old Doris described, doesn't it? Since he was a fresh graduate of the police academy, and it was Sergeant Newton's responsibility to train up the new recruits, Angel went to check his answers with the teacher. The older, wiser cop took a look at the sketch of the scene and said, No, that's not right. Not as wrong as the official account but not right either. Together, they returned to the scene where Newton developed his gruesome theory on what really happened that night. In fact, the lack of any blood in the entranceway showed that Eduardo wasn't crushed there at all. The damage to the gate and car suggested he instead rolled up onto the bonnet as the car careered into the gate. Then, as he was thrown from the braking vehicle, he hit the ground and lay in the middle of the road. In that moment, the vehicle had stopped, and Doris had a choice to make as she looked at her injured friend wincing in the headlights. She had the power over life oh no she's gonna run him over again isn't she she had the power over life or death ultimately she chose the latter she hit the gas intentionally steering over eduardo and dragging his mangled body for a full 40 feet without any mercy oh god it seemed that her maniacal separation anxiety malicious possessiveness or both had driven doris to committing a gruesome and deliberate killing Straight-up murder right there, isn't it? Allegedly. After hearing that, Peter Lance must have been gobsmacked. From beyond the grave, Sergeant Newton had brought all of the threads of the investigation together with an evidence-based theory that had lain smothered under secrecy and corruption for decades. All of their shared suspicions about the case and cover-up seemed vindicated, and it was time to go public. Now, it's worth mentioning at this point that the expose which Lance wrote is still extremely fresh, having only hit the pages of Vanity Fair in July of this year, 2020. In the coming years, there's likely to be 
waves of scrutiny poured on both the event and the independent investigation. As of now, none of these murderous allegations have been officially proven in court. The closest was a wrongful death suit filed by the Torella family five years after the event, which showed negligence and stupidity, but not malicious intent. Saying that, as things stand at the moment, the physical evidence unearthed by Lance seems pretty conclusive. Indents left by the spinning tires in the gravel were observed by both state DMV investigators and members of the victim's family. The rubber marks on the road showed the car turning and accelerating. The blood patterns discovered by the sergeant and rookie corroborated the autopsy's revelation that the victim was never actually pinned against the gate. Honestly, with these, later on you can read something that will refute this and find it equally believable. I mean, maybe, maybe not, but it often happens. Let's see. We'll have to sit tight on this one. But right now, I'm like, she did it, right? Allegedly. The Quigleys even came through with a further print of a picture which had been suspiciously expunged from the newspaper archives but preserved in their own weirdly meticulous family archives. It proved the renegade cop right that the first bloodstain appeared in the middle of the road. Probably with an eye to protecting himself from a hefty libel case, Lance took his findings to a forensic engineering consultancy firm, Collision and Injury Dynamics, before blowing the lid off the case. A senior partner at the firm signed off on the incriminating version of events, and their conclusion read, It's clear that he went up on the hood, fell off, and got run over mid-street. This was a multi-sequence event in which the driver made a number of affirmative decisions in the course of the incident. The evidence leads me to conclude that the event did not occur as described by Doris Duke. It was all there for anyone to see, but not a single piece of this features in the original police report from that day. All you'll find are the two paltry interviews that treat Duke like a puppy who couldn't possibly do any harm to anyone, even though she previously stabbed someone like the boyfriends, and seemed to do all sorts of terrible things, allegedly. As it turns out, she may have been more like her famously vicious German shepherds. And so, Lance went on to publish his findings in the extended Vanity Fair piece earlier this year, all still just as allegations. 44 years after the crime and cover-up, one intrepid reporter's investigation was able to pull the veil of glitz and glamour off one of America's most famous elites, revealing a rotten reality underneath. Maybe. Allegedly. In, is that the end of the story, though? Or did the police kick down 107-year-old Doris's door to shake out the truth once and for all? Well, no, unfortunately. Even if it's all completely true, we're about three decades too late for justice. Doris Duke passed away on October the 9th, 1993. On the same day, her butler bought a brand new Louis Vuitton bag to hold her ashes, which were then cast out into the Pacific from the beach of her Hawaii estate. Another estate. <laughs> In an obituary for the New York Times, she was referred to as the heiress whose great wealth couldn't buy happiness. While that's very true, her unmasked legacy provides that money can buy a whole lot of other things indeed, not least of all a get-out-of-jail card for the most heinous crime there is. Allegedly. <laughs> Wrap up. And there you have it, the story of how Eduardo Torella met his end, how his narcissistic employer likely came to be his brutal killer, and how the world kept on turning as if nothing had happened at all. If it's all left you with a bad taste in your mouth from the lack of justice in the world, I'm afraid I have only two paltry pieces of consolation for you. Well, I'm looking forward to them, Callum, because... I feel like after this one, we need them. The first is a closer look at the wrongful death suit which Tyrella's relatives brought against Duke in the early 1970s. The file had, of course, disappeared from the Rhode Island ar archives by the time Peter Lance got there. <laughs> of course. But we still know a lot of the details and the eventual outcome. As I mentioned, Duke was proven to have caused the death of Eduardo Torella accidentally, meaning that the family was surely due a hefty chunk of compensation. Right? 
I hope so, but I get the feeling it's not going to be the case, right? No, only poor people have to pay their dues. As Lance heard from the niece of the victim, their family was willing to settle for a payment of $200,000, about $1.2 million today, but Vindictive Doris was having none of it. In the end, she negotiated down to $75,000, which equated to about five grand for each family member involved. I told you, the consolation was pretty paltry. You did, Callum. I still expected better. And that's kind of the end of it today. Oh no, sorry, there's a little bit more. There's a little bit more. The last part of the story is a mini-mystery surrounding Doris's death in the late 1980s. She had taken on the service of an Irish butler named Bernard Lafferty for her New Jersey farm estate and other estates. Seriously? By this point, her youth was a distant memory, and under the advice of Lafferty, she decided to undergo a facelift and elective knee replacement surgery. The string of operations through the early 90s took a real toll on the heiress. Under the constant influence of a cocktail of medications and without any children to carry on her legacy, she wrote a new will promising everything she owned to dear old Bernard for seeing her through those unhappy twilight years. Oh no. That's wild though. You're a butler and you're about to become a billionaire. After the ink had dried on paper, Duke's health began to... Did he kill her? (laughs) Allegedly? Duke's health began to deteriorate further. Agatha Christie taught us all to watch out for butlers. Surely not. They're the most murderous tribe of miscreants on earth, and serious suspicions arose when Lafferty decided not to bother calling an ambulance while his employer was choking on a piece of food. Regardless, he continued to care for her and saw her off into the great beyond later that year when her system finally succumbed to the strain of the morphine that she needed to get by. Within a day, he had her ashes stuffed in that Louis Vuitton bag without an autopsy. Lafferty went on to settle into a new life of luxury at the home which Doris once poured all of her hopes for a happy future into Falcon Lair. Wow! The butler got all the money in the end. I mean, he didn't kill her. Surely it's the butler. But, uh... Wow. And that's the end, really, this time, of The Ballad of Doris Duke. A sad story all round filled with jealousy, frustration, and violence. And more awful people than you'd ever care to meet in a lifetime. Agreed, all of these people, whether it's Doris herself, the police chief, the journalist is a legend, well done. But like all of the people involved in the original story, I mean, other than the guy who was killed, they all seem kind of like pretty, pretty horrible people. All of that unhappiness came to a head on that fateful night at Rough Point. Thanks to the efforts of one restless reporter, we now finally have a window into the possible truth of the matter. It goes to show that the perfect crime does exist. In fact, it's just a regular, shoddy, brutal crime with enough cash piled on top of it to make it go away for the rest of your life. It's not much of a moral takeaway, but hey-ho. That's not what we're here for on The Casual Criminalist. You know, most of the time, or a lot of the time, they just get away with it. I'll leave you with the words from the woman herself, with a quote seemingly custom-made for your irritating teenage cousin to post on Facebook. Oh, God. Papa used to say, you help a man who is in trouble and he will be a true friend, but I'm afraid that Papa was wrong. I would have done anything or paid a fortune for one real friend who I could trust. You had one, Doris. You ran him over. Very nice ending there, Khaled. That's very nice. You have included some dismembered, dismembered appendices for me, so that's how many of these are there? Three of these. Let's do them. Number one, Doris's reputation around Newport 
wasn't totally unblemished even before the horrible death on her doorstep. Like everyone's favorite EV evil TV billionaire, Mr. Burns, she was in the habit of releasing the hounds. A pair of German shepherds had a habit of attacking tourists who were walking down the cliffside path to a mansion. Oh my. Number two. These, as these murder allegations were kept hush-hush for decades, you'll find plenty of shining portraits of the heiress online. Her Newport Restoration Society is one of the biggest upholders of the sanitized, celebrated Doris Duke narrative. For example, on their website, they allude that Duke and Castro's relationship ended acrimoniously, making no man making no mention of the mad slashing meltdown. Yeah, and he later broke her jaw. Number three, if you're wondering how Falcon Lair got its name, I wasn't, but now I am. It wasn't because it once housed a bird-themed Bond villain. That's a shame. It was actually built and christened by Italian heartthrob Rudolf Valentino, who named it after a historical drama his wife was planning the hooded falcon so this has been another episode of the casual criminalist if you enjoyed it well please do leave me a review if you're listening to this as a podcast leave me a like if you're watching it on youtube if you have suggestions well let me know in the comments and thank you for listening or watching 